if you keep a very competitive nature with each other from a friendly perspective and pressure to be the best, then you're going to perform and try your hardest. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of our podcast, Partners in Time, uh, the podcast where we meet uh, people in and around the IWC brand and the world of IWC and the things that obviously make us tick. And there are a few things that uh, make us a tick more than pilots watches. And of course, within that, uh, the year of the pilots, it's clearly a, a big focus on Top Gun, especially this fall and this autumn. So I'm very, very honored to welcome our guest for today. It is retired U.S. Navy Captain Jim DiMatteo, um, an actual, actual Top Gun instructor and somebody with more than 5,000 flying hours under their belt. As iconic an aircraft as the uh, F-5s and the Tomcats, of course, and all the things in between. And I think he is going to be able to give us a fantastic insight into the life and world of a modern fast jet pilot and especially the ins and outs of the uh, Top Gun program originally at uh, Naval Air Station Miramar, nowadays at Naval Air Station Fallon in Nevada. Um, and I just want to highlight before I say hello that, of course, Jim today is talking to us in a personal capacity, uh, that just for our listeners to have the background. But Jim, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Well, hello, Chris. Uh, I'm doing great. Thank you very much for uh, inviting me on this podcast. I'm excited to talk to you about this stuff. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I am not in uh, sunny Nevada. I think it's probably quite hot and dry where you are, I suppose, at the moment. Huh? We're hearing <laughs> scary heatwave stories. It's like 106 degrees or something. Huh? Yesterday when I took off, uh, and it, it, it's it's interesting because we start to get at a point where we can't even, we don't take off our fighter jets uh, at, a, at a certain uh, temperature. But yes, it was uh, well over 100 degrees yesterday here. So wow. It's it's warm. Wow. So you can't take off in a fighter jet at a certain temperature. Is that because the, the undercarriage tires are melting or because the engine will just totally blow? No, it's just uh, it depends. Uh, high, hot, uh, air density, single engine takeoff uh, capabilities, tires, tire speed, career speed. Lots of different kind of factors play into the, the whole thing, whether what your weight is, what your centerline tanks, etc. So lots of different factors play into it, but we tend to have just like a number. Um, we put it at uh, like 105 degrees we do for a safety measure. Um, and we were we were close to that yesterday. So yeah, uh, it's, so it's, it is warm here. Yes. So what are you flying at the moment, a uh, day-to-day basis? Uh, right now, uh, I'm with Tactical Air Support, so retired from the active duty Navy, and, and our company is essentially like a contracted adversary, a, a Top Gun adversary for hire, if you will, a, a company that there's a new concept in both the Air Force and the Navy in the United States to outsource the bad guy role, the adversary role. Uh, for many reasons, it, it makes sense, uh, not only from a financial perspective, uh, industry can uh, somehow do this cheaper than the than the government and the military can, but also uh, it preserves your your most cherished assets, uh, both the aircraft and the pilots themselves, to concentrate on the blue side, on the if you will the their role, and they don't have to pretend to be the bad guy. And so there's this new yeah. wave of. Uh, of doing this and tactical air support is uh, one of a couple companies uh, on the planet that do this and so that's why i'm flying the f5 in the top gun adversary role right now so you are flying the f5 see and i always think that is quite quite unique uh, as a connection to where we are in switzerland where i can positively confirm that summer has not arrived i think it's <laughs> low 60s <laughs> here it is absolutely pouring it down every single day and has done so for six, seven weeks. We're right here on the banks right. of the River Rhine and the River Rhine is about half a meter away from actually completely flooding um, the, 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 the river banks. So it's, it's, it's quite an interesting summer. But what is unique about Switzerland, and I'm not sure if many of our listeners are aware of that, is we basically, um, our air force in Switzerland flies the US Navy hardware in the sense that we have uh, FA-18 uh, uh, legacy Hornets as the 
main fighter type in Switzerland. That fighter is actually in the US Navy configuration, including the tailhook, which is very interesting because, of course, <laughs> we are completely landlocked and these aircraft have definitely never seen a carrier in their lives. But theoretically, I think they've got most of the equipment on to be landing on uh, the uh, Gerald R. Ford or, or, or anything else. And of course, we also yeah. fly or used to fly and still fly the F-5s you know, in active duty. I think not anymore in the Air Force, but definitely with the uh, equivalent of the Blue Angels, which is in Switzerland, the Patrouille Suisse flying the F-5. And obviously, Switzerland, Switzerland having a huge legacy in uh, F-5 fighter squadrons as well. So um, quite quite an interesting mirror image of the US Navy at the other end of the world in very mountainous well, territory, but at least the same aircraft type. <laughs> even uh, a, a more interesting connection than that, not more, but an additional interesting connection is when Switzerland started to upgrade to the, the Hornet and, and now I guess the F-35, they will sell their aircraft back to the United States. Yeah, for for more than new, probably. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, who who knows how the who negotiates those business transactions? You know, the Swiss but, are clever um, with money, but Jim, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm sure. Uh, I don't think we, the U.S. was on the winning side, but uh, they. So we actually, I was part of a deal where we went back to Switzerland and took 44 of your Swiss aircraft. Uh, brought them back into the United States and then modified them to play the adversary role. And so the, the jets that I actually flew in the active duty squadron, uh, the Top Gun adversary squadron, were former Swiss aircraft. So mm. um, a fun connection. And, and yeah. of course, we always laugh because Switzerland is so nice and takes care of their equipment so well that... Uh, we traded in an old Navy fighter jet and got a, a new Swiss fighter jet and it smelled <laughs> like a new car and everything worked and it was, it was wonderful. So thank you Indeed, for taking uh, care of those jets. <laughs> I just, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I just thought that thought about it yesterday when I was driving back from Geneva and I was going past a, a column of um, um, Swiss Army uh, G-Class Mercedes's and literally like you drive past these vehicles and they look better than showroom condition. I mean, there's not a speck of dust <laughs> on these cars. And I, I do wonder sometimes how they actually do that. I mean, you know, there's even like, you know, they even have like tire polish on, which is like that sort of extent. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I, I, I guess there's something to do with, with more practice than actually uh, using them in anger. That's probably one component, but yeah, the maintenance is, is pretty flawless i have to say well i think it and it dovetails into it, to your culture right and, and why swiss watches are, are are so renowned for precision and and everything else is your country and your culture is just to take care of things and to keep them at the highest level uh with maintenance and condition and everything else and so um something to be very proud of for sure as a country and uh we were the benefactors here in the united states to uh to receive some uh, some of your older aircraft that uh, that play a very very critical role uh, for us in the United States. Yeah, so thank it's you. definitely. I mean, in the beginning, it's it's United States who develop the aircraft successfully, and it's the Swiss who develop the watches successfully. So there is an exchange program going on. So when you're flying TAC Air, you can benefit from the precision reliability of an IWC Top Gun watch. On the other hand, the Swiss Air Force very grateful to 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 benefit from all those amazing technological development developments over the last oh, 50 years or so. It's been, been, been quite some time. And I often talk about that. But for me, that was really my entire um, sort of childhood uh, dream of flying was was really influenced by, by those aircraft, you know, especially the F-5 and later the F-A-18, because um, we, we had a place, a holiday place, very close to the um, Swiss uh, air base of Payam, uh, where the F-A-18 yeah. were first introduced and they built the first simulator and so on. And used to be able to drive right up to the fence where basically on the barrier um, they had a basically a, a country road that went right across the uh, uh, the runway and when they had aircraft actually taxiing and taking off they just closed the barrier but you were literally like eight ten meters away from the aircraft uh, taking off when when you're waiting in your car and uh, that used to always be the highlight of my uh, my uh, autumn break holidays um, when they were doing like heavy flying in Payan is to go up and just you know that that 
the serial experience of actually hearing the the twin engines firing up of the F eighteen uh, taking off that that you know that rawness of it and the the you know it's it's just fully emotional. I think that's sort of what triggered um, that fascination in me quite a bit. Uh, how did it start for you? And, and tell us a little bit about your story and how you first got interested in this this idea of, of one day being a jet pilot. Well, I, I will, and just to dovetail a little bit on on your story. Even as an old fighter pilot right now, today, I still have those same emotions when I'm uh, next to a jet taking off. Uh, so uh, it's a joke that uh, that my wife will say is that if a plane flies overhead, I, there's zero chance that I will not look up and see what mm. it is and try to analyze what's going on. So uh, if you're passionate about aviation, it's it's with you for life. So. So sorry, Chris. You're gonna you're gonna have that for the rest of your life. Uh, yeah, I know that passion. So um, for me, uh, I, I was fortunate to really in, in just a lucky situation uh, to be born into a family of of aviation. My father, um, who's oh by the way is going to turn 100 years old in in uh, in two months. Wow, in a month that's and a half, amazing. So knock on wood. Yeah, uh, he. He flew and started flying in World War II. He joined the Navy um, in World War II and started flying uh, Hellcats and Bearcats and then went on to uh, Korea and um, and even in Vietnam and, and flew uh, 50 different uh, fighters and, and helicopters in, in the Navy. And, uh, and so when I was growing up, um, my older brother as well, uh, joined naval aviation and started flying uh fighters as well um and so i these guys i idolized my dad is my my hero the most important human uh, in the world to me as a man as a father as a as a fighter pilot as an officer all the above and um and then uh, again i uh, really uh, respect and idolize my brother as well and so um, I would say if there was a, a first, like a moment, uh, we have a summer place like your summer place you were talking about, but uh, this is in Montana on a on Flathead Lake, a big beautiful lake, and we're out on this island, and and my brother um, took his jet and uh, came zipping by and kind of low altitude did a bunch of maneuvers, all of which looking back at what I know now were illegal and were shouldn't have been done in that area for sure. Um, but uh, nonetheless, uh, those, uh, those maneuvers and that seeing my brother doing that and, uh, and the excitement that that instilled in me, that was, if you will, the hook that was set. And at that point I just thought, all right, I'm, I'm doing this, uh, or at least I'm going to try and, and my dad was always one of those guys who who emphasized, you know, you'll you have to try try to chase your dreams, um, even if you maybe don't achieve everything that you want. Uh, at least uh, go after them with as much energy and passion as you can, because then when you get older, you'll never regret uh, not not going down a path or at least trying to go down a path. And so. Um, I love that, uh, that guidance, if you will, for me, it worked out where I was able, able to actually achieve the dream, but, uh, I can feel, and I've, I've met many, many, many men that, uh, and women, but especially men that uh, come up to me and say, man, I wish I would have done that. Uh, you know, I always wanted to do that. I wish I would have done that. And, um, and so the guidance that I give my son now is the same thing. It's just, you know, chase your dreams, go after it a hundred percent. And, and then, uh, whatever happens going to happen, but, uh, at least you'll never look back and regret that you didn't try something. So, so that's how it all kind of started with me. Uh, saw my, my brother and my dad and, um, and then I just said, okay, that's, that's it. And then I, I kind of jumped in with two feet, uh, after college, uh, and, and then, uh, just, very extremely fortunate that things just happen to go my way. 
Absolutely. Let's talk a, bit, a little bit about Top Gun, because, I mean, as we're speaking, you up in, in Fallon, Nevada, the, the home of Top Gun. And I think this is always something where we have to explain a little bit and debunk some myths as well, uh, because <laughs> to me as well, in the beginning of the journey, uh, many, many years ago, um, of having seen the movie, but then obviously uh, coming in contact with uh, the real Top Gun, uh, th there is some explaining that needs to be done. So Top Gun, of course, as, as you will explain to us in a minute, I think it, it, it's, it's a nickname, right? At the end of the day for the uh, Strike Fighter Tactics Instructor Program, but it's not even, is, is that even an official name? It is in a sense. Huh? Well, I guess it's evolved into official name, but yeah, the, the main name, mm. uh, the Navy Fighter Weapons School is, is the, the course, if you will, or the actual command and squadron. Uh, so if you see like a document, um, that's what it would say, Navy Fighter Weapons School. Um, underneath, now we have what's called Nautica Naval Air Warfare Development Center. Um, kind of, that's yeah. the umbrella that it kind of looks under or, or is under. And then Top Gun is, is kind of more a word that evolved uh, because we use that kind of terminology uh, in the military. Uh, for example, aircraft carriers, uh, we, we land on an aircraft carrier, as you were mentioning earlier, with a tail hook. Um, and so we have a category actually called top hook, uh, which we always try to compete with each other. Not necessarily. Well, I guess the, the concept of competition is, is really good because it keeps everybody honed and performing at the best possible uh, ability yeah. that they can. And so we like to compete with each other uh, as a culture uh, internally uh, to develop everybody, to raise the bar on everybody's uh, capabilities. Uh, and so I think that that's probably where the original genesis came from was we would always have competitions. Even in my, in my dad's era, uh, I, I have his diary where he's you know, competing and on air to air gunnery and, and air to ground stuff with his squadron mates and who's the top bomber and who's the top gunner and who's the top strafer. And, uh, and so I'm sure that that's kind of where it originally evolved from, but that's, that's what everybody calls it now. Uh, and once the movie came out, of course, now, now the word top gun has what it's transcended to a, a whole nother thing. Uh, IWC can be the top gun of watches. It's actually a, a word that's used mm -hmm. to describe stuff all around. Yeah. So we've got to establish one thing, Jim, because I think we've been arguing over this for, for years and years and years. But the real actual Top Gun, as you would spell it within the naval aviation community, is it one word or two words? One word, all capitals. Ah, there we go. <laughs> At least we got that that's one right. Yeah. That's, so that's, that's it now. Correct. Definitive. <laughs> definitive. One word, all caps. <laughs> but now, one word, all caps. The It's interesting because the movie, so the real name, uh, the official name is Navy Fighter Weapons School. And if you look at our patch, where you, you of course you know our patch, it says on the patch, uh, United States Navy Fighter Weapons School. It doesn't yeah. say the word Top Gun. And yeah. so what paramount and those guys did with the first movie they said well we need we, we can't call the movie united states navy fighter weapons school um we want to call it top gun and then so they created a logo if you will a paramount type logo that really the world probably not probably 100 percent recognizes that logo and that brand more yeah. than it does the real one and i believe in that logo it's two words top being one word gun is, being yes. another word yep. type of thing so so that's probably where the the genesis of the confusion came from um but uh, yeah yeah i did a ton of research on that back in 2012 when i first got into the you know working on the first uh, top gun launch at iwc that i was involved in and i think the the earliest inkling i got that this is what it, this is what it was was actually um graduation beer, you know, steins or mugs or whatever you want to call them that were handed out as part of the Top Gun graduation ceremony. And I think there was an, an image of a certificate somewhere, whether that was an official certificate or not, I'm not sure. But that really, 
Um, that's where I first saw that that all caps top gun one word appearing. And as you rightly say, it doesn't say it on the patch. Therefore, you have to kind of look at the collateral <laughs> to figure out um, exactly um, what it is. And then I think for me, the next very good indication was actually during my first ever visit to Fallon. Of course, uh, just outside the base next to the subway is a, is a gift shop. <laughs> And uh, you can clearly refer to what it says on the coffee mugs and what it says on the key rings. And I think now it's settled. But that's that's good for everybody as a heads up. So the movie is Top Gun, two words, not all caps. And the actual Top Gun is all caps and one word. That's sorted. Brilliant. We got somewhere. (laughs) So tell us a little bit, give us a little bit of an overview. What what is this and how does it relate to the um, day-to-day work of a fighter pilot? Because we understand you run through... Uh, Navy basic flying program, you then probably graduate, you get into a fleet role, be that a squadron or another role. And then, of course, then Top Gun comes. So what is it? What does it teach? How does it happen? How did you get there? So we just, uh, Top Gun, Navy Weapons School, just finished its 50th year. As you know, uh, IWC participated in that. And so it's it's been around for 50 years and it's evolved, as you can imagine, over time. Uh, the genesis of it was that in Vietnam, we were, we being the United States, um, in air to air battles were losing one aircraft for every aircraft we were victorious over. And so mm. the United States said, that's not an acceptable uh, ratio. We have to improve the air to air dogfighting capabilities. And so they established this school, Navy Fighter Weapons School at Miramar. And um, that was really the evolution. It was really a few guys um, that uh, were tasked to it, some younger guys. And they just concentrated on how can we improve this one specific skill set because we're losing too many people. And so that was kind of the evolution or the, the beginning of it, the genesis of it. And then it's evolved, as you can imagine, over the years. Um, as naval aviation has evolved, as the whole world has evolved. And uh, now what happens is that each fighter squadron, so if you're flying Super Hornets on an aircraft carrier, you're in a, in a fighter squadron, the commanding officer will, will pick an individual about every third year or so. These are all generalities. Um, and then that individual, or if you're a two-seat squadron, uh, if you fly the F-18 that has both a fighter pilot and a WIZO, a, a weapons system operator in the back, you'll send a crew. Um, so about once every third year or so, a squadron will be able to send a crew, one or two guys, to uh, fighter weapons school. And that person or that, that crew will go. And really, it's like doing a three-month-plus uh, doctorate course to get your PhD in the latest and greatest. Um, and when I say latest and greatest, I mean all sides of what's happening in, in naval aviation. So you have an academic aspect of it where you're, you're studying your weapon systems and the potential adversary that you might tease weapon systems. And then you fly air to ground stuff, you fly air to air stuff, and you essentially you get this doctorate, if you will, on uh, dogfighting and being the best of the best and the best that you can be at that point with the latest and greatest intelligence and information on everything, our systems, everybody else's systems. So when you walk out of that, that that's top gun. That, that's what you do. So you come here for a few months and you go through this very, very difficult, challenging, but extremely rewarding course. And when you graduate out of that, you're the, honestly, you're the best you'll ever be. <laughs> and your, your, um, number one goal or your number one assignment, if you will, is to go back to your squadron or go back to the fleet and then proliferate that information out to your squadron mates or your, uh, the weapons schools. Mm. And so, it's kind of like we say we teach the teachers. So yep. the top gun concept is grab a few people, teach them to then have them go out and teach the fleet. 
And yeah. so um, that's the way that we kind of stay on the tip of the spear as far as technic, uh, uh, tactics and techniques and procedures um, and intelligence and all the above. Uh, that's how we proliferate like what, what we want to do as a country. That means basically that in a, in, a, in a regular fleet squadron, every three years or so, you would have a new Top Gun graduate coming into your squadron, having all the latest information, latest tactics, uh, latest uh, training guidelines, philosophy, and so on to really keep the, the, the entire squadron up to date with, with that tactical side of things. Is that right? Yes. And, you know, in generalities, there's always slight little yes, differences and there's some other uh, weapon school stuff, et cetera, that happens. But in general, that's that's the mindset. And and we talked about the uh, Navy Fighter Weapons School patch or our logo. Um, and you what, you don't get a trophy when you finish uh, going to talk to them, but you do get a patch. And the patch, it, it signifies a lot. Um, so that patch goes on your shoulder, on, on your flight suit, on your flight jacket. And... And that designates you. It's kind of like having a biography or a CV on your uniform where you walk into the bar or the club or a ready room um, or a squadron and they see a Top Gun patch on your shoulder. They, they know exactly what you are and who you are and what, where you've been and what you've done. Mm. Or they're going to a stag do or fancy dress party, which could. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and then of course, as as uh, naval aviators are going back to their fleet squadrons, I, you know they would obviously wear the squadron patch and the name patch that is in the squadron colors and design that somehow go with a t-shirt, right? So, yes, typically a normal flight suit. Or a jacket, you would have your name tag. So it would say Jim DiMatteo. Often it'll yeah. say Guido, which is my call sign. And what kind of wings you have, that's on your left chest, um, yeah. whether you're a pilot or a, a naval flight officer, et cetera. And then you'll have a squadron um, patch designated which exact squadron, and that's usually on your right chest. chest yeah. And then on your shoulders, is where you could put like the um, on your right shoulder, you could put your top gun patch, if you will. Uh, on your left, a lot are, are now American flags. This is kind of what's kind of changed and evolved over the years. Uh, unless you have some other designation that you want to do. But then, then when it goes, that, that's like a flight suit. And then when it goes to a flight jacket. It gets a bit wild. It gets a little bit wild, and and there's some leeway, and uh, and some guys come in and try to change things as far as leadership, and then there's pushback, and the younger guys, and historically and legacy, and you know, there's always an argument about what what uh, what flight jackets should look like. Um, mm. So it's again like your CV. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's like you see, that's, that's absolutely right. But from a civilian perspective, then it's rather unlikely you'll be seeing a flight suit that is covered in different patches and mission patches, like from the bottom of the sleeve all the way up and every other ne visible surface, suit. not on a flight suit. That does happen occasionally on a jacket. And there's also this wonderful yeah. tradition of overlaying patches with different accomplishment degrees, sort of half overlaid, sewn one on top of the other. I've seen that quite a bit as well. Yeah, when we typically, like if we, we talk about top hook, uh, for example, that's the the top landing grades, and we'll have what's called top 10. So we have a, they have 70 pilots on the, uh, on the aircraft carrier, and we go out for a month. They'll have, that'll be called a line period, and we'll rank the pilots from one to 70. And the top 10 pilot in their landing and the top 10 pilots will be part of the top hook uh, or top 10. And so that's a patch and guys will put that on their jacket. Again, that's a CV, right? That's like a, uh, an award. And mm -hmm. if you get multiple ones, instead of putting it all over your pack jacket, you just kind of layer it and you'll see, Oh, that guy's got, you know, four top hooks patches and but they're kind of right yeah. on top of each other 
um, so it doesn't take up as much space. Which looks very cool, by the way. So we copied yeah, that for the um, Silver Spitfire mission that we did in 2019 by then oh, overlaying nice. the Silver Spitfire mission accomplished patch over the actual Silver Spitfire original patch. So there you go. This golden one goes on top of the silver one. So that that's our little, you were our inspiration for that one. Awesome. <laughs> now that, that that's fascinating stuff and what, what I, you know what I want to get at a, a little bit is to understand a little bit the, the mindset you know we know I mean and you've you've hinted at that obviously it's the elite of the elite it's the the top one percent or so of naval aviators actually going through the Top Gun program and you, you hinted at this competitive mindset of it all being about a competition now of course, air-to-air -air, uh, is probably not the the standard reality in, uh, out there in the world today. But how has this evolved over time? And, and why exactly is it so important to have this constant competitive mindset? And why is this so much part of the culture of Top Gun? Well, I would say it's not only the, uh, the culture of Top Gun, it's of fighter aviation. I would imagine internationally, but I know definitely in the Navy what I know the best, but uh, also in the Air Force is um you get i i believe and again we have the benefit of a hundred years of aviation tactical aviation in behind us and so we're really standing on the shoulders of the giants that uh, created all these programs uh before us and it has evolved into a situation where uh over time i'm sure historically they just found that if you keep a very competitive nature in your unit uh, with each other from a friendly perspective, it and pressure to be the best amongst your peers, then you're going to perform and try your hardest uh, to be the best that you can because you're not only do you want the recognition of being the top guy, but you don't want the recognition of being the bottom guy. And so yeah. there's, you know, from a cultural perspective, there is a, your work ethic, your, 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 uh, preparation, your determination to do better all increases from everybody from the bottom up because nobody wants to be at the bottom. And especially if people know you're at the bottom and we have, uh, again, I refer to the landings on the carriers and, and I say this because it's the most dangerous thing we do. And so there's a lot of emphasis of how do we, how do we maintain the absolute best skill set that we can and never let our guard down when we're landing on aircraft carriers because lots and lots of historical mishaps have occurred. And and so when you walk into a ready room, and it, we all do it, you glance at that that board, and you can tell right away who's the top, and more importantly, right away who's struggling at the bottom. And so, yeah. some people in a company might say, like a civilian company might say, that's brutal, that's that's horrible. You're embarrassing the the poor person who's struggling. Uh, and maybe the answer is yes, but um, what what we've discovered over time is because we're trying to raise the bar, not at the top, yes, at the top, but more importantly, we're trying to raise the bar of the bottom, right? Mm -hmm. We want everybody to be at a certain level or above. And so competitiveness within each other and then the openly acknowledging who is at the top and, and who's maybe struggling then there's that extra pressure and it's kind of brutal but if if that extra pressure results in you doing better that's great but if that extra pressure results in you continually do poorly or maybe even doing worse because you put too much pressure on yourself well that is going to result in you getting asked to do something else and yeah. again because it's life it's concerning life and danger and risk it, it's it's, you're not failing in life. It's just you, you're not a carrier fighter pilot. You got to yeah. do something else. And you can go be an airline guy. You can be a helicopter pilot. You can go be a cargo guy. Uh, you can chase whatever other dream you want to do, but we don't want you to die doing this. 
And so no. that, that, that's where that competitiveness comes from. Definitely not. And we're also looking after quite a bit of taxpayers' money, which is also a, <laughs> a factor mm-hmm. in the whole thing for sure. But let's talk about that a minute, because of, of course, one of the, um, as you pointed out, the, one of the absolute unique characteristics of the job is that in all weather conditions, day and night, you are trying to land a heavy, fast fuel and weapons laden fighter jet on a boat, basically, which is is somewhat <laughs> not the most logical thing to do. Um, and of course, there is that takeoff bit uh, where, where you could argue, okay, that's a, a little bit more straightforward, get shot off the boat and uh, full speed and off we go. I'm sure it's more complicated than that, but it sounds a bit more straightforward. But talk us a little bit through what actually happens when you try to land one of those fast and heavy jets on a relatively short flight deck. I mean, just for our metric friends, an aircraft carrier, what is about 320 meters long or something thereabouts. And obviously the, the actual runway part of it is, is even shorter because you're, you're landing at an angle. Uh, but talk us through what actually goes into this process of bringing one of these jets down on the deck of a boat. So how do we do that without killing people is training, 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 and, and making sure that again, we go have the bottom up approach that you have to have a certain capability. Even with that said, there's, there's lots of situations that occur, especially in really bad weather, or really black nights, or, you know, throw in a engine failure or something like that, some mechanical issue that you have with the plane or something's not working. And it, uh, it can get extremely difficult, extremely quickly. Mm. Um, but the, so coming back and landing in the daytime, you, you tend to initially, of course, it's extremely difficult, but uh, you tend to get used to it in the daytime. It gets very fun and competitive and, and you try to be the best, right? We're, we're all competing with each other. So you want to be top hook. So everybody comes in and, 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 and breaks left, turns around, comes around, gear flaps down, coming around, land visually. Um, that makes it sound very simple, but <laughs> let's talk <laughs> about that step by step. So you're on a you're on sort of a glide approach path. At that point, I can only imagine. Like I'm just going to describe this sort of in my mental civilian mind. You know, the aircraft, the carrier is probably looking very, very small from where you are up there in the jet. Uh, and then, what do you use to actually guide you in? And what happens? There's like a, a light, like a meatball type thing. Huh? There's other pilots yeah. on the ground that you're on the radio to, and just talk. Talk us through it a little bit, step by step. Okay, so so the daytime's different than the than the nighttime. And when I say nighttime, I it's a the nighttime approach is like an airliner. You know, you're coming straight in from many miles away, and you put your gear down and your flaps down, and you're just a straight in approach, just like you and I land mm. on airliners. Uh, that would be kind of what we call like our nighttime approach. In the daytime. We come at three, four, or five hundred miles an hour overhead the ship at altitude, like at eight hundred feet overhead on top of the ship. And as soon as we hit where the ship is, we break left, we turn a hard turn to the left, we reduce our throttles, we slow down, we pop our speed brakes out, we get to what just a beam the ship going the other direction, mm. we put our gear down and flaps down, and then we slow down. And then we turn and we land. And the only straightaway is about 17 seconds. That's what you're kind of targeting. And yeah. as you come around visually in that scenario, we have, we have target altitudes and airspeeds the whole way around the pattern that you're, that you're trying to target so that when you roll into what we call the groove, that's that final 17 seconds. When you roll into the groove, you're, you're at the altitude you're supposed to be at, you're at the earth speed you're supposed to be at, and you're lined up where you're supposed to be lined up. And then you fly what you referenced it. It's, we call it a meatball because it's a, it's a, it's a lighting system that's on the left side of the carrier that tells us if we're above glide slope, below glide slope, or on glide slope. And so we look at that visually to tell us where we are and should we climb or should we descend a little bit. Now, all this is happening extremely quickly. In fact, the time I was just talking, we would have already landed. Um, mm. and so, <laughs> a few times. <laughs> yeah, we have to process that very quickly uh, and, and react to it. 
there are, we, we, we say three things, meatball lineup angle attack. So meatball tells you your, your glide slope. Are you above or below lineup? Are you, are you right where you're supposed to be? And Oh, by the way, lineup is extremely difficult because it's moving when it's tiny. And, when and second, it's moving it, and it's, it's small. moving <laughs> and it's small and it's even what, what we call in the ocean. You got the, the waves, right? But you also have the heave of the ocean. So the, like the whole carrier, not just the back end will come up, but the whole carrier will raise and lower. So imagine the airliner trying to land on a runway where the runway is literally just moving all over the place. Um, so you have to kind of adjust for, for that. Uh, and then airspeed, what we call angle attack, because we have a tail hook, uh, you really, if you're looking at the meatball and you see yourself on, on the altitude, but you're super fast, that means the, the hook to eye, it means the geometry is not quite right. You have to make an assumption and the assumption is that, um, you're on the, airspeed that you're supposed to be on because that will give you the right visual. So you have to, all these things are all happening and you have to kind of get them all to happen together and work right and then come down. And as soon as you land on an aircraft carrier, we go to full speed, a full throttle. Um, and the reason why is the, the, the landing area is what we call an angled deck. It, it, it doesn't go straight to the front of the ship. It angles a little bit. And the whole reason is that if you, because it's so difficult, sometimes you miss, which we call bolter. And if you miss the wires or even you did everything perfect and your hook just happened to skip over the wires, um, if you miss, then you have to go around. And so as soon as we land, we go to full power. And if the wire catches you, you're going to know right away. And it's a, it's a tragic not tragic it's a fantastic dramatic but it's dramatic um because you're going from uh 200 miles an hour to zero in a second uh so it's kind of what we call a controlled crash uh so we will go out and if you miss the wire then you have the power set up so your engine just pulled up so you can take off and try again at nighttime the last 17 seconds is the same but setting up for it, we don't come overhead the ship and, and turn. We, we land like an airliner. You come straight. So yeah. we come straight at it. Uh, and we don't, we use much more instrumentation versus visual. Yeah. And then, of course, there's the bit in the middle as well that you just sort of, <laughs> you know, went over quite casually is the fact that you've basically, you're extending a metal hook from the back of your aircraft, which got a hook bit on the end, which is a couple of inches big or feels tiny anyway when you look at it. And you're trying to hit a series of wires that are actually stretched across the flight deck precisely with the back end of your aircraft and that particular hook to actually catch on. And that, as you described it, either then arrests you in a, in a, in a, in a second from 200 miles to zero or, or not, in which case you better get a move on and start flying again. I mean, exactly. how, how big is that space of tolerance that you have from the earliest point where you can actually touch the hook down on the flight deck to catch the first wire, which um, you're not supposed to do, I guess, uh, to, to the last opportunity. What's the kind of the, the space we've got? From a, from an altitude perspective, from a high or low, we're only talking a few feet that you can move that hook uh, because... Yeah, and a, and a length distance between first wire and last wire? And some have three, some have four, but basically it's probably a couple hundred feet uh, in length. But the, the, the that length is is not really the the challenge. The challenge is this hook tip is going uh, sideways almost, right? So it's mm. the, the length on the ship is a little bit more irrelevant. You have you only have a maybe five feet of uh, higher or lower where you're, yeah. if you're not there and at the right airspeed, uh, you're not going to catch the wire. Yeah. So, and we're talking um, here about, a you know, in metrics sort of 19 meter long aircraft traveling at close to 200 miles an hour, that <laughs> you're trying to get onto a wire within sort of a five foot altitude kind of, um, you know, frame, which is, is, I mean, that is just astonishing. Exactly. Yeah. It's like yeah. a window. 
now I will say though that, uh, and this is nothing against the the younger the younger guys, but um, these jets are getting because of sophisticated technology. It, it that that whole thing about landing on an aircraft carrier that I just talked about is getting much less difficult. Now there's still all the other parameters that you have to deal in there, and I'm not trying to say oh. You know, back when I was young, I'm back in the old days. Although I did it with a pair of binoculars. There you go. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, what what they what they have realized, and this makes sense, of course. You, everybody can understand this. Is that um, you're talking hundred million dollars plus jets in uh, lives at stake, and so it's worth developing technology that makes landing on a carrier as easy as possible. And when I talked to my dad in the the early days, we were crashing lots and lots of planes uh, yeah. trying to land on aircraft carriers. And fast forward, you know, 75 years and the amount of planes we're crashing now today versus in the 40s is dramatically different Definitely. in a positive yeah. way. And, and it's well, which and is it's good the way it should be. Yeah, definitely. Now there's just a gentle voice reminding you to raise your sleep mask to put your seat <laughs> in an upright position because you'll be landing. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's it's yeah. good. It's all going the right direction. <laughs> we do it. We, we love the British, you know, accents too. So it, yeah. uh, I'm sure it will, the, the, somebody, some British lady will tell us, you're a little yeah, low. Exactly. Get up, get up a foot. Yeah, <laughs> a little low. Just, just raise your seat a little bit. There, there you go. Thank you. Can I take that tray from you? Exactly. <laughs> Something like that. Brilliant. <laughs> no, and, and and of course as well, you, you you mentioned that earlier. It's it's a perishable skill. So it's not that you do like some kind of takeoff and landing course, and then it's like riding a bike and you've got it for life. So every time you train up towards a, a deployment on the carrier, you kind of have to try and learn that all over again, right? Uh, absolutely. And um, and there are requirements for what we call currency. So on, on day and night at time. So as much as you know, I say that the it's a little easier now. The realities is, is the same. The, the internal pressure and requirement for the individuals uh, are, are similar, and so currency is important to have. And then also, kind of as you do it many, many times and have a, a lot of landings. It's like anything else. You start to learn what to anticipate and expect. Uh, in fighter jet aviation, we talk a lot about being what we call in front of the aircraft. So your mind hmm. is out in front of the aircraft. And when you move at incredibly high supersonic speeds, you know, at times you have to be thinking well ahead of the oh, aircraft. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because if, you're, if your brain is at the aircraft, that's dangerous uh, because you're reacting to things and things are happening yeah. too quickly. Uh, if you're what we, and this is a term we use behind the aircraft, what that's, what that means is things are happening and then you're reacting to them. And that, that's very dangerous. And interestingly, I think uh, people like Lewis Hamilton, Formula One racing drivers in general, yep. they will tell you exactly the same. You know, their focus is many, many meters ahead of the car and they don't really deal yep. with things that are, you know, in front of them. They deal with things way ahead. And, and that's also, I think it's probably a function of speed, I guess, because you, you simply have to have this um, margin of, of reaction uh, before it's just too late <laughs> to uh, correct your course. But let's um, cover quickly uh, one thing I've noticed, obviously, we've We've had the immense honor and, and pleasure over the years to work uh, with, with, with many um, U.S. Navy and Marine Corps squadrons uh, in the fleet, but also, of course, the Top Gun instructors in Fallon and so on. And then we, we, we can't fail to notice that there's a real fascination for mechanical watches in the community. And it's also very interesting to see what really makes those projects so fun for us as well is to see that the range of requirements really going from quite a sort of tactical, subdued designs to really quite sort of, you know, luxury focused, I'd say almost storytelling focused, quite uh, emotional designs. So tell us a little bit, what is this, this love affair between pilots and mechanical watches now today? As you said, there's a button for most things or, or a, a sensor for most things, but this uh, this idea of sort of all of the history and the ultimate backup instrument that seems to be still very much alive and kicking. So what's that all about? 
Yeah, I think, and I, I might have a, a special uh, connection or bond uh, with the mechanical watch, but I think it applies to all of us is that uh, as fighter pilots is that we all have a huge appreciation for the history, the heritage, the legacy of, like I said, the, the warriors that uh, the heroes that came before us. And those are the giants that uh, really had the tough times, but, you know, we're the benefactor of today of their hard work and incredible dedication and commitment and, and risk and all the stuff that, you know, and I'm not just talking the U S I'm talking internationally, you know, that whole generation, um, uh, really, uh, made things nicer for us today. So we have a huge respect for the history, the heritage and the legacy, uh, of fighter pilots of the past. And the, the mechanical watch to me, and I don't want to say this in a bad way, like it doesn't, like it's old, but it's a connection to that generation. Mm. It's a connection to that time in the world that the people who are our idols and our heroes, they were using those same watches, if you will. And, uh, and in aviation, as you know, you know, navigation is all about time, distance, heading and, and timing and, and being able to time things chronologically is a huge, uh, development over time again right now you got just buttons you can push with you know gps blah 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 but but still kind of the genesis the the stuff that that we're all proud of um in the how our profession came about is symbolic in a mechanical watch i believe now mm. it's it's even more important to somebody like me because i remember you know the first watch i ever got was uh, was my dad's and, uh, and it was all scratched up. Uh, but he's my idol and, and he gave me this watch, uh, that he used in the cockpit, uh, often. And, um, it, it was symbolic of not just time, but also like of him and all that he went through to make my life better. We have that historic aspect of it. And then as fighter pilots, we're all kind of geeky in the, you know, uh, in the mechanical world. Like we, we, we like engines and hydraulic pumps and all that kind of stuff. And so the, the concept of how a watch works, especially a mechanical watch, is just intriguing to us. That's like a Da Vinci thing, right? It's just like, that's it cool. Indeed. And so this mechanical watch is a combo of all that. It, it, it's what we're naturally attracted to. It has the history and heritage of our, end, of our, of our occupation. It is symbolic of our iconic heroes. And so to me, all of that is combined Which, and when you look at it, it, it has all those emotions. Plus it just looks really cool. And because of that, over time, it's just developed that, if you're a fighter pilot, you better have a cool looking watch. And that's Absolutely. where we are today. So on that note, a little wrist check. What's uh, Jim DiMatteo wearing today? <laughs> I've got my SFTI watch uh, oh, cool. right now. Uh, yeah. And uh, Very nice. with the green strap, because uh, I fly yeah. this afternoon, it's it's the one that I like to wear in the, in the jet. And uniquely, my dad's watch was all scratched up and you, you might remember this. Some of the older people I know, my dad used to wear his watch. I, I never really understood this until I started flying fighters. Uh, he wore the watch with the face on, on the inside of his hand, yeah. right? Yeah. Not on the outside. And I never knew yeah. why because none of my other friends, parents, dads did that. And then I realized it was because when he's flying – He's smacking around inside the cockpit and is scratching up the glass on the outside. Well, you guys now, IWC, I, I'm looking at my watch right now. There's not a scratch on it. If anything, I thought there was this little gray. I thought, oh, darn it. I nicked my watch. And then I realized that it was paint from the jet. Yeah, it wasn't exactly. It's mark transfer it. marks. Yeah. <laughs> so I discovered today, yeah, actually, one of my colleagues up here in product management, he's now got a... Uh, uh, literally a pencil that has two different grade um, rubber ends to it. 
And that works perfectly, uh, getting the uh, transfer marks of the ceramic cases. So he just did it on my um, perpetual calendar, Mojave Desert, this morning, and uh, it's good as new. Um, and literally, yes, every time you think you've nicked the watch, you've actually nicked whatever the watch has struck. So yeah. <laughs> Sorry to the American taxpayer or uh, Taka in yeah. that case. For the <laughs> a lot of damage I'm doing inside the car. Just cockpit. come off the jet. <laughs> yeah, but my, wa my watch looks great. <laughs> No, I get that. This whole like watch upside down at the time, obviously the 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 leg of the pilot would have been considerably softer and kinder to the watch face than any other surface in, in the cockpit. So that made sense. But luckily today, the sapphire crystal is not only uh, pressure drop resistant, but also obviously virtually unscratchable, which is a good thing. It's amazing. I don't know how you do it, but uh, it, no. it, and it looks wonderful. Jim, finally, that I saw on your CV, and one thing we have to talk about, because I think it, it to me, it is such a, it's a core part of the whole uh, Top Gun philosophy and idea. Because for me, personally, and, and do correct me if I'm completely uh, off the mark there, but I always think it's a little bit the attitude of work hard, play hard, right? It's all about, there's a little bit of, you know, competitive, adventure seeking, thrill seeking, overcoming challenges, all of these elements. And then we're back on the ground, we're back on the boat, our heart rate that you described so aptly has somewhat relaxed and calmed down mm -hmm. again. And then, you know, there's also, there is this sort of play hard, party hard kind of element. And I'm, I'm intrigued and excited to read that you've been operating nightclubs for the last 25 years. <laughs> yes. Yeah, they, uh, it's funny that you say that because I, I love that statement, play hard, work hard type of thing, because to me, that's, that kind of summarizes life, right? Go mm -hmm. after it yeah. and, and enjoy it. So be proud of what you're doing on the work side and then um, enjoy, enjoy life mm -hmm. uh, on the other side. And so yeah, that's a, owning, owning businesses, juggling the, Fighter pilot world was incredible professionalism and, and guys, these are thoroughbred horses that I don't have to whip any ponies at all in a leadership uh, perspective. They are, they are hard charging. But and, in the bar, it's a different story. But man, and yeah, running in restaurants and bars, it's, it's different. But the, the, the thing that I really enjoyed in the restaurant bar, one, from an entrepreneurial perspective, I've loved just owning my own places. And um, that, that's, that was always a, it's been a dream of mine. And so I really enjoy um, that aspect of it uh, and the leadership aspect. I really enjoy that as well. And, and, and then bringing joy to other people. So as much as I like in the restaurant and bar and nightclub world, uh, I come from an Italian uh, family that, you know, every Sunday, my mom and dad, we had 20, 30, 40 people over. That was just, that's what we did. That's, that's yeah. how I grew up was my, my parents entertained. And so I love that aspect of entertaining other people and making them happy when they walk out the door. And uh, it was a natural transition to, you know, restaurants, bars, and clubs. And it was very enjoyable for me to have people come, enjoy themselves, have fun, forget about the challenges they have in their life for that period of time and then walk out the door you know, smiling and, you know, just happy to be alive. And so that, that was very rewarding, uh, from, from my perspective. So that's, that's where the combination was. And you can't have a, a good fighter related movie without a bar scene. So <laughs> we, <laughs> we've got to make sure we shoot one of those in one of yours one day. <laughs> you know, they, it's part of the culture and sometimes the stuff that we get a little bit in trouble about um, because I, I think it evolved again, if you think back in the world war two generation, that type of stuff and, you know, in, in the tactical air side of things, meaning like dog fighting, and there's a lot of stress and stress and pressure. And mm. I think this was a way for them to get, get away from that for a while. Yeah. Right. Just, it, release, you know, not, yeah. not, endorsing the alcohol side of it that was just part of it it was more of a let's let's go do something socially to just completely get our mind off of the craziness that we have today and the craziness we have to go back to tomorrow um and so there's this fun camaraderie kind of like a you know sports team that's what a squadron really is i, I, yeah. I squadron yeah. is really like a sports team 
and uh, the the ready room is very much like a locker room a locker and room. the relationships you have analogy. with there we go. yeah with uh with your fellow squadron mates is very much like I've had with you know fellow teammates you know in yeah. sports and when you when you work together as a team and and uh achieve a ultimate goal especially if it's really hard to get there uh, the bonds that you form with those people are everlasting. And so I'm fortunate enough to have played rugby on a national championship level. And, and I'm still today friends with my national championship team from 1985 and 1984, and 1983. And it's amazing. And uh, my son actually just won uh, his rugby team, just won a couple weeks ago. And I told him, I said, you know, you're going to have friends from this team 35 years from now because you shared this journey and this challenge uh, together with them and you formed a bond. And, and when I look at my squadron mates, the ones that I went through the hardest times with, you know, as far as like combat and challenges and deployments on carriers and stuff, they're still my closest friends today. And uh, yeah. so that's, so that's really unique, and I, and I just love that that aspect of it, and and the bar kind of plays Brilliant. into that whole thing. What a beautiful note to end on, Jimmy. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Wishing you all the best uh, for your time in Fallon. Hope you have a good rest of your week, uh, enjoying uh, doing what you're doing in clear crystal blue skies <laughs> under the Nevada yeah. sun. <laughs> We're not jealous at all here. Not jealous yeah. at all. I'll go back to my desk and carry on doing the things. I like. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I hope that we can come out again uh, very, very soon. Thank you so much for being on the IWC team, Jim, as well. It's an absolute pleasure to have you. Thank you. Thank you to all our listeners. Thank you for tuning into the podcast and uh, speak to you all uh, next time. And you, Jim, take care and speak to you very soon. All the best. Bye for now. All right. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thank you for listening to today's episode. This is the Partners in Time podcast. Make sure you subscribe to never miss an episode. If you want to find out more, visit iwc.com. And you can, of course, follow us on Instagram. It's at iwcwatches. My Instagram is at chrisgrangerhair. Make sure you tune in. Speak to you soon.